All right, good morning. If you have a Bible, open it to Galatians. And if you're following along in the black Bibles under the chairs, we're going to be on page 974. So we are turning a page in the black Bible, which is very exciting. Uh, Page 974, we're in Galatians 3, verses 23 through 29, continuing our series, Centered, in which we've been asking the question, what centers our life? What directs our life? What is your compass uh, when everything else falls apart, what, what's going to be there for you? What's going to be the foundation? And the, the answer Paul has been giving is the good news, the gospel, grace, faith in Christ and Christ alone. And so this week, we're calling it Christ-centered, Christ-centered. The law is temporary. Christ is permanent. The law's uh, position and point in what God is doing in the world is getting us to Christ. I want to thank Kyle Black, who is uh, planting the church we're helping to plant out in Kempner. I think I've told you we've been, we've been doing this series together, and so I've uh, gotten all my main points from Kyle today, which is one of the benefits of working together. We can steal from each other, so that's, that's been good as well. So I want to thank him for the outline. But let's read the, let's read the text together, and then we'll, we'll pray and see what God has for us. So starting in 3, verse 23... Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Heirs. Let me pray for us and ask God to help us. God, help us this morning. We pray that your spirit would open our our hearts and, and help us to see who you are and how great a treasure you are that all things are given to us in Christ. Um, God, you know all the distractions that we feel. You know the the physical pain that our our bodies might be uh, distracted by, the emotional anguish, the just the list of things we have to do, our our questions, our doubts, our frustrations. And so we just bring all that in, recognizing that you know and you can see. And we lay that down at your feet and ask you to to teach us. Ask us. Uh, we ask you to help us to see you in your word this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was one of the scariest uh, experiences I've had as a parent. Uh, Woke up in the middle of the night. My wife woke up. We were startled, you know, groggy, but hearing our son just just wheezing and and hacking and unable to breathe in the next room. Uh, He was about two years old and he just, he was just gasping for breath. He wasn't getting the oxygen he needed. Um, we were at a hotel actually in Orlando. Uh, I had, when I was in ministry early on, bivocational helped with the travel business, and I would make arrangements. I would basically deliver high school bands to destination spots where they would play in a contest or they would play in a parade. So this time we, we got to go to the, to the big one, the big parade at, at Disney World. So it was like, kind of like someone who, it was my job to deliver them, to host them, to make sure everything turned out okay, to get them their bus, get them their hotel room, bring them meals, all that kind of stuff. So I got to bring my family along on this one, um, but my son just, he can't breathe. This one time we were in Orlando, 
there had been fires. I don't know if y'all remember hearing about that in Florida. It's probably, I guess this would have been like 15 years ago because he was so little. But there was just a haze in the air. You could smell smoke. You know, it wasn't just like black, thick clouds of smoke, but you could see the haze. You could smell the smoke. And he had been fine all day long, but then in the middle of the night, he couldn't breathe. And that was a terrifying experience. And my wife was quickly grabbing him and throwing him in the car seat. I'm calling the operator downstairs like, where's the hospital? You know, we're at Disney World. Do they even have hospitals in Disney World, you know? There's this little town called Celebration. It's this weird, like, Truman Show kind of town. But anyway, that's another story. And so, yeah, hospital's down the street. We, we run out the door, grab the other kid, jump in the car, race as fast as we can while he's just, <laughs> you know, and his uh, ribs are contracting. It's just, it's terrifying. Um, and, and then finally, we were able to get him to the doctor who had medicine that could open up his lungs and he could, he could breathe again. Uh, and, and in the text, we have this image that the law is good and great and fine, but its job is to get us to the healer who is Christ. I mean, I, I love my son dearly, but in that moment I was absolutely helpless to, to heal him. I couldn't, I couldn't make him breathe again. All I could do was run as quickly as possible to get him to the doctor. And I, I hope you see the connection that that is what the law does for us. The law is great. The law is beautiful. It, it exhibits God's holy, righteous standards, but it can't save us. Its point, both historically and its point personally for us as individuals, is to lead us to Christ, the healer. And so finally, we, we got him to the doctor. His lungs opened up, and of course, we're then, you know, we're exhausted because we've been waking up in the middle of the night, and we're, you know, scared to death, and now he's all happy and wants to play. You know, everything's fine for the two-year-old, um, and it worked out okay. But what I want you to see in this text is that Paul is saying Christ is the point. He's the healer. The, the law the law's great, the law's fine, but its, it's point is temporary. It's just there for a little while and it's moving us to Christ who is permanent. He's the treasure. He's the, he's the point. He's who we're trying to get to. And so the first thing I want us to see is that, that driving uh, to Christ that the law does. We're driven to Christ. We see this in verses 23 through 25. So look again at verse 23. It says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So more kind of negative term- terminology like we saw last week of uh, the law has this ability to heighten sin, to show sin, to say you failed, right? You haven't lived up to God's holy, righteous standards. And so we're we're captive under that. Under the law, it's like shackles on us, showing us the problem, not healing us. There's a problem, but I'm not healed yet. And the law reveals that problem to us. And verse 24 goes on and says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. This word guardian... It is a very specific Greek word. It's pedagogue. Any of you teachers here? Raise your hand if you're a teacher. Have you heard the word pedagogy, right? You've heard that terminology? That means like the art of teaching, right? And so this has this kind of teaching concept in it. But specifically, the pedagogue in Greek, they don't say teacher here. The King James said schoolmaster is how it's translated. But uh, these guys translated it guardian because it's, it's more like a nanny type character. So in Greek, the pedagogue wasn't the one that actually taught the kid. He was the one... Uh, that like whipped the child and got him to the teacher, right? 
that that was the pedagogue's role. He was the one that was like, no, don't go over there, come over here, you know. And he was the one that like drove, you know, if they had cars back then, he would have been the one that put the kid in the car and drove him to school. That was the role that the pedagogue had. And so Paul is saying that what the law does is it shepherds, guards, carries, moves over to Jesus, who is the real solution. So Jesus is the solution. The, the law is not the solution. That's not to say that the law is this terrible thing. The law is what gets him there. Amen. So the law leads us to Christ. We're driven to Christ through the law. We see our sin. We recognize our sin. We recognize our, our need of a solution. We have a problem. We're dying. We're broken. We need someone uh, to fix us. And what's interesting is how here Paul is mixing kind of two different aspects of the law. And he's done this already in Galatians. I had a great uh, email exchange with someone uh, this week about this concept. What, what Paul demonstrates is that there's this kind of uh, historical aspect of we were under the Mosaic Covenant, right? It was a historic dispensation, some theologians would say, or just a parenthesis. You know, it was like a temporary thing until Jesus came. So there's that historical aspect. You might say the ceremonial aspect or the covenantal aspect of the law, right? It's a particular administration legally, and now it's over. And now we're in this new administration of Jesus, the new covenant, Hebrews would argue. So that's kind of the ceremonial argument. We can't save ourselves through the ceremonies of the Old Testament. We need Jesus. All those ceremonies pointed to Jesus. They were all pictures of Jesus. Like I've said before, flannel graph that said, this is what Jesus is like. He's the perfect sacrifice. There's also the moral aspect of the law. Think about individually in our own life. We just can't be righteous enough, right? So Paul flips back and forth between that kind of legal, covenantal, ceremonial view of the law and also the just pragmatic righteousness issue of I just don't love people like I should. I just am not as pure as I should be. I'm not, I don't think perfect thoughts all the time. I don't always do the right thing. I don't always make the right choice. And so Paul, throughout Galatians, people get confused because he's kind of flipping back bef- between both understandings here. So the law, the negative definition of the law, I would summarize by man's attempt to save himself, right? That would be the negative biblical definition of law. When the law is viewed negatively, it's, it's viewed in that sense of man's attempt to save himself. The New Testament condemns attempting to be saved by the ceremonies of the Levitical law, but also by our own morality, our flesh. Both sides. So it fails on both counts. Neither can save us. Paul even goes so far in Galatians to equate salvation by law-keeping with salvation by indulging the flesh. We're going to get to that next week. They're both forms of self-salvation. So Paul's flipping back and forth. He's saying this kind of law can't save you and this kind of law can't save you. Either one, they're both overlapping, but he uses both arguments to say the law can't save you, only Christ can save you. But there's still a positive definition of the law biblically, right? The law are God's righteous standards. We, we should still do right things. The point of faith in Christ is so that we would begin to be transformed, to be like Christ, to love people, right? And to be faithful to our spouse and to be honest people and to not murder people and to be generous, right? So, so all these things reflected in the righteous standards of the law, we, sh- we should live those out. And you even see that in the New Testament in the way that Paul will quote the ceremonial aspects of the law and then he'll, t- he'll take principles out of it and import them into the New Testament. I've been reading a book by Tim Keller called Generous Justice and he, he shows that, how Paul will go back and, and quote a ceremonial thing and Paul's clearly saying we're no longer bound by the ceremonies of the Old Testament but it was teaching us something about God's character, his righteousness, his holy standards. And we can still learn 
from that. So we get confused. There's a positive and a negative aspect of the law. We should do what the law says, but as a system, it doesn't work to save us. As a, as a system, we need Jesus. We need Jesus to save us. And when Jesus saves us, then the Holy Spirit starts doing those good things in our, in our life, right? The law is written uh, on our hearts. I was thinking about this idea of, of the pedagogue, right? This, uh, this slave that would kind of drive the kids to the teacher. And I was thinking, like, what is a role that I've experienced like that? Like someone who was kind of a harsh taskmaster that kind of oversaw my behavior in a law sense. And the best analogy I could come up with, I don't know if y'all played sports, but I played football. And the best analogy I could come up with was the coach, right? The coach's job, you know, I knew, I knew my coach loved me. I knew he was a great guy, but his job was to blow that whistle and yell at me every time I made a mistake, right? That doesn't mean he's a bad man, right? I mean, some of you might have had genuinely evil coaches. My, my coach was a good guy, but he kept pointing out what I did wrong. He kept pointing out what I did wrong. He couldn't, like, jump inside my heart and make me love what is right. But he could certainly correct when I stepped out of line, right? And he did that faithfully, again and again. That's not actually my coach. That's just some random coach I found online, but... A couple of years ago, I got to preach at our, our, uh, our sending church in Temple, the church that kind of helped start our church eight years ago. Um, so I was in Temple preaching to the bad people, and I actually saw, I saw my old football coach there. Like, he didn't go to church when I was on staff there, but then in the last few years, he started going to church there. And man, I was, I was kind of nervous, you know? Like, I was, it's like, oh, he's right there looking at me, and you know, I'm like checking to make sure I'm tucked in, and... I'm worried that I'm not ironed enough. You know, I just, I felt that feeling of, of condemnation. I mean, and, and this guy's a godly, wonderful man, right? But over and over again, we had a relationship where he pointed out what I did wrong. He pointed out where I did wrong, where I failed. And I had this kind of fear relationship there. It all worked out. I was able to preach my sermon and everything. And he, he was very nice about it. But the, the law has that relationship to us. The law oversees us and says, you failed, you failed. You, you haven't done it. These are the God's perfect standards of righteousness, and you haven't fulfilled them. Is there a good blessing in, in doing those right things? Yes. So in that sense, the law is good. It's beautiful. It reflects God's perfect righteousness, His holiness, but, but it's not a system that can save us. Jesus saves us. Jesus saves us. So the law drives us to Christ. So my question for you is, when you fail, are you tempted to run back to the law right? Paul is saying, Galatians, don't go back to the law because the law's whole purpose was to lead you to Jesus. So don't, don't then go back to the law and think the law can fix you, fix you up again. Because what happens personally in our life is we come to trust in Jesus. I have forgiveness. I have acceptance, right? I'm a son of God. He loves me. I'm in his family. And then we have a bad day, right? We have lots of bad days, right? We have a bad day and we're, we're tempted to run back to the law and think, okay, God doesn't love me anymore because I had a bad day. So if I clean myself up and I do more right things, then I'll restore the relationship. But, but you've been delivered to Jesus, right? So don't run back to the law and think that you can save yourself all over again. You're already saved. If you've trusted in Christ, your sins are forgiven and Jesus is with you and he's saying, let's work, let's work on this stuff together. Let's work on this stuff together. So don't push him away and say, no, 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 Jesus. I got to do this on my own. I got to clean myself up. You can't look at me until I've fixed myself. That, that's, that's the running back to the law. In our daily experience, when, 
when we've failed, when we've had a bad day, when we've sinned, Jesus is standing there as our advocate at the right hand of the Father, and we say, Jesus, forgive me, I messed up again, and help, help me figure this out, help me work this out. We have to recognize that we, we're in continued relationship with him, and he, he loves us, and he's going to walk us through those changes. Does he want us to change? Yeah. Does he want us to have less bad days and days that aren't as bad as the other day? Yes. But don't think law is going to fix that. Don't think fixing yourself is going to fix that. The law drives us to Christ. In the next section, Paul gets into this idea of being united with Christ. We've talked about this, that all of our justification, all of our blessings are in him, and in union with Christ, in being one with Christ. And so he says this in verses 26 and 27. He says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. So faith, remember, is not Gnostic uh, mental ascent. Right? The Gnostics would say, that's just an idea and it doesn't matter how you live. That's not what faith is. James tears that up in the book of James. Faith is real trust. Faith is genuinely loving, trusting, believing in Christ. We're justified by trusting in Him. So he says again in verse 26, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. We're sons by faith. We're in His family by faith. We're accepted by God by faith, by trusting Him. And then he goes on in verse 27 with a parallel statement. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Baptism is the way that we're identified with Christ. So Paul would say, as many of you that have been baptized, you've, you've trusted Christ. That was the way historically Christians say, I'm in, right? It's like putting on the team jersey. Um, the Cowboys were doing good there for a little while, you know, got our hearts all excited. So probably a lot more people were putting on, you know, wearing Cowboys jerseys, wearing Cowboys hats, you know, saying, I'm in, right? I am in union with the Cowboys. They are me and I am them, right? Of course, now they're, they're doing bad again, so forget all that. But we, we, all have, we all have our teams, right, or our associations or the people that we want to be identified with. When you put on a shirt that has a label or you put on a hat for a team, you know, you're, you're identifying with what you're wearing. Even a clothing style, right? You, you, you think, I want to be known as this kind of person that's got it together or looks like this or looks like that or uh, washes his clothes or, you know, whatever the low bar is that you want to be identified with, that you're identifying with something when you put on those clothes. And baptism is a way of identifying with Christ, with his death and resurrection. Uh, Colossians says, you know, it's a, it's a burial and resurrection image. And then, of course, the washing image is the most foundational because it's a water thing, right? It's a ceremonial bath. You're saying, I'm, I'm dirty, I've got sin, I need Jesus to wash me. So you're trusting in, in Jesus. You're being identified with him. And so you can think of it like uh, putting on team jersey or even like a wedding ring, Right? Um, so in our culture, often people will get a wedding ring to identify with their spouse and identify the covenant that they've made, right? Now, the ring doesn't magically make me uh, married. The ring's a sign of my covenant with my wife. So when you see the ring, you know, okay, I'm spoken for. My, my, I belong to my wife. I love my wife. But the actual marriage covenant is, is the promise I've made publicly to her, to love her forever, right? That's the so that's the, that's the marriage, it's the public promise, which just for an aside, and I know culturally we're, we're forgetting that, right? That is what marriage is, a man and woman promising forever with each other before a community and before God. So that definition doesn't change based on the whims of our culture. But that's, that's another story. The, the identification, like baptism, we're identifying with someone. 
Now, what happens uh, if you're, say you're a single guy, you're walking through the parking lot, you find a ring in the parking lot. If you put that ring on, is it like, boom, you're married. <laughs> that, that's not how it works, right? Like, you could hate God and not trust him at all and get baptized, and you're not in Christ. So, so we just need to be careful that we distinguish. There is a distinction, but at the same time, it's common in the New Testament to associate them like they're the same thing. Like if I would say, hey, I want to talk to all you married guys. You better love your wives. All you guys with wedding rings on, let me talk to you for a minute. Right? I'm, I'm kind of using that as a way to speak of your, your covenant. In the same way, the New Testament talks about baptism as, as the same thing as faith. It's almost the same thing. It's not exactly the same thing, but there's an association there. Luther says this about this section of Galatians. Luther says, the righteousness of the law, therefore or if what we ourselves do is not given to us in baptism. Rather, Christ himself is our garment. So we're putting on Christ as our garment. As I used the analogy earlier of clothing, we're, we're clothing ourselves in him. He, we're associated with him. When people, when people see us in whatever uniform we're wearing, they associate it with us with that uniform. We're, we're putting on Christ. And Colossians says you're, you're hidden in Christ. You're clothed in Christ. John Stott says this, In Christ we find ourselves... The unattached become attached. The unattached become attached in Christ. We were not a people, but now we're a people. We were tribe-less, but now we're sons of God. We're in His tribe. So the, the wedding metaphor, there's wedding rings, and I think that's like a 75-carat diamond she's got on there. That is enormous, right? Um, but there's now an association. There's an attachment that's been formed there. And so again, the way he says this with Christ is, verse 26, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. So in Him, union with Him, association with Him, identification with Him, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Our whole hope is Christ. We're putting on Him. We're saying, Christ, I'm trusting in You. I'm trusting in You to make this work. I'm trusting in You to be my salvation. My my question for you this morning is, have you turned from self-salvation, turned from pleasure, turned from religious discipline, and trusted in Christ? Are you still trusting in those other things? There's got to be a turn. You've got to turn from those things and trust in Him. They're two sides of the same coin. The New Testament words are repentance and faith, right? Turning and trusting. Have you turned from self-salvation? Have you turned from your own spiritual discipline? And trusting in Christ. Or do you think your spiritual discipline is enough? Are you thinking, I'm, I'm a pretty righteous guy. I can keep the law. Especially if I lie and shrink it down to a manageable size. Right? <laughs> I can keep the law and I can be righteous. Or are you just pursuing pleasure and saying, I'll just, I'll just keep following my heart and that's going to save me. I can save myself through pleasure, through indulgence. The New Testament says that both of those roads lead to death and that we have to turn from self-salvation and trust in Christ. We're not a church that really pushes for decisions a lot because what I want to do is I want to lift up Jesus so much that you are like banging down the door wanting to trust in him. But I want to just pressure you for a minute. If you haven't trusted in Christ, you're trusting in yourself. And you can't save yourself. You can't save yourself. So I just want to plead with you to turn and and to trust in him. Trust in him. Accept what he's done for you on the cross, dying to take your place, absorbing the wrath of God, living the life that you couldn't live to give you that righteousness and dying the death that he didn't deserve to take away your punishment. Trust, trust in him. Trust in what he's done for you. The last point is that we are equal heirs in Christ. 
we're all united in Christ. And since we're united with Christ, we're united in Christ. Does that make sense, right? So we're united in Christ by faith, and so we have the blessings of Christ, but that means also all of us as a, as a mixed group, as people from different backgrounds, those of us that have tried to save ourselves through pleasure and those of us that have tried to save ourselves through religion, we're, we're all united. We're all one. We're equals in Christ. Look at verse 28 and 29. He says that here there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So those of us that that grew up in the wrong side of the tracks, or grew up with a messed up family, or even grew up with an awesome family, all those things, those are all secondary, and now we have a real family in Christ. We're a part of His family. We're Abraham's offspring. We're united to Christ. And it doesn't matter where we come from. It's interesting, he throws out like three different categories, right? Like he's talking gender, he's talking racial, he's talking class, social class, slave and free. He's saying in all those different ways, all those kinds of diversities, we're all united in Christ. We're all equal heirs. We're heirs. We have an inheritance, right? Look again at verse 29. If you're Christ's, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. That means we get to inherit everything God's promised of worldwide salvation, we get that in Christ. We get that blessing, that salvation, that hope, that Jesus is making all things right. We, we get to receive that in Christ, our hope. Romans 8.32 talks about this idea of being an heir, being someone who inherits something. He talks about it in 8.32. He says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul's logic is, if, if God gave you Jesus, how much more will he not give you everything? We're heirs, right? We, we think of inheritance or heirs in kind of a worldly sense of we're kind of struggling with the bills and then some aunt we didn't know about dies that has money and now we've got a big inheritance, right? That's, that's, like, a, that's like a scratching the surface of the concept here. Paul says all things, all things. 1 Peter 1.3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then he uses this heir word again. He says, to an inheritance, right? We're heirs. To an inheritance that is imperishable, can't perish, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So we're still waiting for it to be fully revealed, right? We've got it now, so we don't have to worry about everything else that's going crazy and wrong in our life. But we don't fully have it yet. We still groan, as Romans 8 says. We're still longing for the completion, right? We're longing for it to all come together, all be made right. So because of that, that should reflect itself in a radical unity, equality among the people of God. Equal heirs in Christ. Now, there's a a theological um, viewpoint of gender equality here that I want to address because the way I understand it biblically, we kind of hold a middle position on the understanding of gender. There's an extreme position that would be maybe a traditional patriarchal position that would say uh, men are just better than women and women need to stay in their place, right? And we would reject that as unbiblical. Christianity basically has liberated women from that position and that posture that most traditional cultures hold. But there's also another 
extreme position over here that's sometimes referred to as egalitarianism. And they, they would kind of make this their key text. So since, there's, since we're one in Christ, we have equal status before God, which we would agree with. It's right there in the scripture. Therefore, there should be no distinction at all in life ever. And I would say, well, the same, the same New Testament that says we have equal status as sons of God also calls men to lead their families, also lays the burden on, on men to lead the church and lead their families. And so we kind of understand those two things as going together. We call that complementarianism, that we are equal before God, Galatians 3.28. We're equal inheritors of the kingdom of God, but he has different roles for us. And that can be hard for us to understand, um, hard to swallow. I mean, I know for me, like in my family and, and most of the guys I know, our, our wives are smarter than us, right? So you're like, God, why, why'd you set it up this way? But for some reason, he, he calls us to lead. Now, we need to define it contextually. What does leadership look like biblically? Leadership biblically, in Ephesians 5, Paul says, Husbands, this is how you lead your wives. You lead your wives like Christ led the church. How did he do that? He died for the church. He entered into the church's world and died. Sacrificial giving. But that's what leadership looks like in the New Testament. The, the other picture Jesus gave us of that is when he washes the disciples' feet, right? In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, this is what leadership looks like. If you want to be a leader, get down on your knees, scrub, wash, serve. So, men, we just need to be careful. We understand what leadership really is. But God calls us to lead in, in the home. God calls us to lead our families. God calls us to lead in the church. So, as I said, we, we would hold to, biblically, what's sometimes called a, a complementarianism, which would be a middle position. We absolutely reject kind of traditional patriarchy, but we also would eject radical egalitarianism or feminism in the sense of there should never ever be a distinction and the genders are exactly the same, right? We would say, well, there's, there's a distinction, but we're all inheritors of heaven, of blessing in Christ. We're all equal before God. So what are the other pictures here? Uh, the other picture is racially, right? He talks about Jew and Gentile. There should be racial equality. And then he also talks about class. There's no slave or free. There's equality there as well. So the way Ephesians picks this up is it talks about the manifold wisdom of God being presented in the gospel. As God is saving people, it's a manifold wisdom. And that word manifold is, is literally multicolored. So Paul's saying in Ephesians 3.10, if you want to write that one down to look it up, so often it's translated multifaceted or manifold, and it literally means many colored. So I have a picture here of a multicolored rug. So the people of God are not to be a beige rug. The people of God are not to be a tan rug or a pink rug or a yellow rug or a brown rug. We are to be a multicolored tapestry. That is what God is at work doing. He's joining all people because, as Paul's been arguing in Galatians, you don't have to become a Jew first racially before you can trust Christ. You can just trust Christ. And so we all gather together from different backgrounds and different places and different ways of thinking and different styles, and we all come together and say our hope united is in Christ. We're all heirs because of Christ, not because of what we did or what our culture accomplished or what our people accomplished, but because of Christ, because of him and him alone. So here, here's a couple of ways to think about this. How, how do we... How do we do this? Uh, how do we practice this? How do we live this reality? If we are really equal heirs in Christ, how do we live out diversity in a healthy way? What does it look like to, to live out a God-honoring diversity? I would say, um, regarding race, seek to build friendships among other races. Just try, right? 
Is that so hard? What, what if we just tried? What if we tried to just listen to each other, tried to respect each other, tried to build friendships, tried to build um, bridges? I think we need to do whatever we can to seek to close the gap, recognizing that we live in a culture, there's specific history here in this culture, but also in a broader world where people hate each other because of how they look. So we should actively try to disarm that message, right? So there's a worldly message of my tribe is better than your tribe. So we want to seek by the Holy Spirit prayerfully, doesn't have to be mechanical, but prayerfully seek, God, how are ways I can disarm that worldly message of my tribe's better than your tribe? How can I seek to display then in my friendships that we're all equal in Christ? How can I do that? God, give me eyes to see. Make me a learner. Help me get better at that. So we should pray that prayer and seek those kinds of friendships. Um, in marriage, man, this is a really, marriage is a great lab for working this out, right? Folks, like, so in Ephesians 5, it says that husbands uh, should lead their wives, but to do it like Christ uh, led the church, by loving, by dying, by serving, right? And so husbands, sometimes, I've heard this, sometimes husbands don't understand their wives. Have you ever heard that before? And what can happen, husbands, is, is you kind of like slowly back away, you know, like, oh, I don't know, I don't get this, I don't know what's happening. Christ didn't back away from us. He pursued us. He entered into our world. He left the comforts of heaven and entered into our world. Um, husbands, sometimes it's more comfortable to just think the way you think, right? I'm a, I'm a husband too. I understand it. Like sometimes I just we just don't get... Our wives, but God calls on us to follow Christ's example to enter in because Christ entered into our world, to enter into our wife's world, to seek to understand, to seek to love, to seek to sacrifice, to seek to be one with our wives. And, and wives, the flip side of that is the Bible calls, especially Ephesians 5, the Bible calls on you to respect your husbands. So that's a way of supernaturally showing grace to a man that frankly doesn't deserve that kind of respect, right? He just doesn't always perform, but God calls you to respect him by grace, not because he's perfect. It's a gospel issue. We're called to respect him, show honor to him because of the love that Christ has shown to us, not because he's perfect. And so that's, again, a way that we show that we're all equal heirs in Christ by showing grace to each other. I, I love to talk about this because it kind of blows people's minds. We're, women are never called to love their husbands, right? They're never called to love their husbands. There's this one verse in Titus 2 that uses the word love in English, but it's the Greek word phileo, which means think your husband is cool or like him, okay? So scripturally, the command is always to honor, to respect, to submit, to uh, esteem, to phileo, think he's cool or like him, you know, be okay with him. That, that's the kind of language that's used is how can you build him up? Even when he doesn't necessarily deserve it, that's, that's a way of showing grace to him. And then finally, when it comes to class issues, Paul addresses no slave or free. And I think, you know, we don't, necessarily have slavery in the same sense today that we did in previous cultures, but I just want to address it as an issue of class. Uh, a lot of us are leaders, a lot of us are teachers, a lot of us, I'm, I mean, I'm in ministry, a lot of times we go in and we help hurting people, right? And one of the things I've learned as I've read books about how to help hurting people is one of the biggest problems that happens if you're a teacher or a soldier, or doctor, or anybody else that's helping people, giving them something that they don't have, right, or trying to lead them in a way that they need help, the problem is you can start to develop a Messiah complex. You can start to think, I've got it all together. So I think when it comes to class issues, like if you have something and you're helping someone who's poor or who's struggling, make sure you remember that you have something to learn from them too. right? Make sure you remember that we're all one in Christ, which means in Romans, we're all sinners. 
And that means we're all sinners in the same way. We've all fallen short and we all need the grace of Christ. So that, that makes us equal, right? So you may have something you've learned that they haven't learned yet, but they might have something to teach you as well. There's a great book by uh, a guy named Brian Fickert. It's called When Helping Hurts. And he really helps people work through that in the book When Helping Hurts. Understanding that even as I'm helping somebody, that doesn't make me Jesus, right? We're brothers and sisters in Christ. As, as somebody, somebody said, it's, it's one poor beggar showing another poor beggar where to find bread. So, so remain humble in your walk as you're helping others. I just want to wrap up here and remember a great parable, I think, that helps us to keep Christ at the center. It's a parable in Matthew 13 that talks about, it's actually two parables together, that talks about the kingdom of heaven is like finding a treasure, right? It's like finding a treasure. Matthew 13:44 says this, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So to translate this into the language of Galatians, this would be like you've, you've kind of built up an account of taking care of yourself. As I said, maybe it's through pleasure, maybe it's through self-discipline, but you've kind of acquired some assets and then you discover this even greater treasure. You discover that Christ is the center and in joy you throw away everything else and you go for him. You sell everything that you had accomplished before and you pursue this treasure. This greater treasure makes everything else before it pale. Paul says it in a slightly different way in just the next verses in Matthew 13, or or Paul doesn't say it, Matthew says this, or Jesus says this and Matthew records it, right? Matthew 13, 45 says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So the question is, is is the pleasure you're engaging in now a greater treasure than Christ? Is your puny little religion that makes you feel better than the next guy, is that better than Christ? Is whatever form of self-salvation we're pursuing, is that really better than Christ? Or is he the real treasure that causes us with joy to throw everything else out and pursue him? I love the song that we were singing today. My heart will sing no other name but Jesus. Jesus. That's our prayer. And as, as people who repent daily... Some days we wake up and our heart sings money, 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 right? Some days our our heart sings relationships, relationships. Some days our heart sings respect, respect, respect. And when we really see Jesus, we see him as the ultimate treasure. And our heart will sing no other name but Jesus. That's what the life of faith and repentance looks like. That's what it looks like to turn and to trust, is continue to turn away from these other things you've acquired and with joy, purchase that field. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you are our treasure. We thank you, Christ, that you are the center, that you are what matters, that you are what gives us life, that by union with you, we are we're heirs. We have everything we need. We thank you for that. We thank you that you see us as delightful, as beautiful. And I pray that you'd help us to continue to turn and trust in you and not return to the law, not return to self-salvation, but to trust in you and you alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.